Welcome to the teaching ministry of Calvary Port St. Lucie. Let's join the pastor Mike Wiggins for part one of Before and After. Amen. Well, this year in America, about 2.1 million couples will get married. This year in America, about 2.1 million brides will adorn themselves in a beautiful white dress and, and walk down a church aisle and their beauty will take their husband's breath away. 2.1 million couples this year in America will stand and they'll exchange vows. They'll say something like, like you said, I don't know if you had a traditional wedding, a more contemporary wedding, but you exchanged vows if you're married today. It sounded something like this. It sounded like, you know, I take you to be my wedded wife or my wedded husband, to have and to hold from this day forward for uh, better, for worse. You remember this? For richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish until death, us do part. And then sometime during that beautiful ceremony, you guys exchanged rings. And again, whether you had a traditional or contemporary wedding, I don't know, but you probably said something like this, with this ring, I thee wed, with loyal love, I thee endow, and all my worldly goods with thee I share, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. And then at some point, um, the person that performed the wedding uh, pronounced you husband and wife, and you gave your wife a passionate kiss, guys, and then everybody applauded, right? And everybody danced the night away. 2.1 million couples this year will start off so well, will begin so beautifully, but before it's all said and done, about one million of those marriages will end so tragically, okay? About 2.1 will start so beautifully, but about one million or so will end so tragically. You know the stats as well as I do, about half of all the couples who say I do, before it's all said and done, will one day look at their spouse and say, I don't anymore. One million shattered dreams. And those shattered dreams will cause so much heartache and some of you guys have experienced this in, in your own lives. And you need to know from the, the start of this four-part series that we're not here to condemn you at all. We're here to help you and encourage you and point you to Jesus and point you to his word, his perfect word, that if you'll follow his love letter and follow his word, here's what his word says, love never fails. There is a foolproof for marriage. It's true biblical love and love never fails. And so about half of the couples will, who got married will, will end, their marriages will end in divorce and, and it'll cause so much heartache for the couple, for their family members, for their close friends, but, but sadly it'll cause a lot of heartache for their children if they did bring kids into the world. And so there's lots of reasons why about half of marriages end in divorce but I believe one of the primary reasons is this. It's because so many couples, while they're engaged, don't spend much time preparing for their marriage. They spend a lot of time preparing for the wedding, but they don't spend a lot of time preparing for the marriage. 
You see, there's a big difference between a marriage ceremony and wedded life. So throughout this series, what I'm going to do for four weeks, I'm going to give you some before principles and some after principles. I'm going to give you some principles for singles, and I'm going to give you some principles for married couples. And so as we do that, here's your first before principle, and this is for all the singles in the house. Spend more time preparing for your wedded life than your wedding day. Spend more time preparing for your wedded life than your wedding day. It's simply because the wedding ceremony is going to last about an hour. Your wedded life is supposed to last for the rest of your life. But here's what couples do. Couples will spend months and months preparing for their wedding day. Right? And they'll, they'll spend months and months negotiating deals and making decisions about who's the maid of honor going to be? Who are the bridesmaids going to be? Who's the best man going to be? Who are the groomsmen um, going to be? Are we going to have flower girls? Who's the pastor going to be? Who's the DJ? Who's the photographer? Where's the ceremony going to take place? Where's the reception going to take place? Who should be invited to our wedding? Who should not be invited to our wedding. How in the future can we avoid those people we did not invite to our wedding? And you go through all these questions during the engagement period, spending months and months figuring out details for invitations and dresses and tuxes and the venue and the flowers and the food and the drinks and the cake and on and on and on for something that's going to last about four hours. The wedding ceremony, give or take an hour. Reception, give or take three hours. You spend all this time figuring out what's going to last for four hours, even though your wedded life, which lasts for a lifetime. You know how most couples, you know how much time most couples spend getting ready for their wedded life? Right there. Zero time. I'm talking about most couples in America today. I'm glad when Stacy and I started getting serious in our relationship that we had people around us that helped us understand this important truth that you gotta put some time into preparing for wedded life. 29 years ago, my wife and I went on our first date. Now, we met at our college. Um, I went and visited the college because I was thinking about going there. She was already there. I met her there, but we also went to the same youth group together in church. And so we started dating. And let me tell you something, if you don't know my wife, man, uh, she has such a warm personality. She's such a kind person. She's so beautiful. I fell for her before she fell for me. And I fell really hard. And so not long after we started dating, I told her that I loved her. But what I still can't understand to this day is that she made me wait for months before she would tell me she loved me. She didn't make me wait days, she didn't make me wait weeks, she made me wait for months before she finally said it, and I'll never forget the day when she finally told me she loved me. It was the fall of 1986. We were getting ready to go to college together. My mom and dad agreed to take us to college in my dad's pickup truck. So mom and dad are in the front, Stacy and I are in the back, not the back seat the back bed of the pickup truck. By the way, I have to say this, I do not recommend going down I-75 or I-10 in the back of a pickup truck. But for 450 miles, we are in the back of my dad's truck. And for six hours, we talked 
and we laughed, and we had to talk really, really loud because over our heads was this plastic visqueen covering us and our luggage in case it rained. And so we're shouting at each other. And my wife, because she's a brilliant person, came up with this idea, you know, instead of shouting at each other, why don't I teach you some sign language so we can just sign to one another? And so she began to teach me the basics of, of sign language. And as she's teaching me the different hand shapes, she spells out, I love you. And I said, what? <laughs> and then one of the best moments of my life, she leaned forward in the back of my dad's pickup truck and said in my ear, yes, I love you. And I'm thinking, it's about time, man. I've been waiting forever. Visqueens slapping over our heads. I'll never forget it. And we pulled up into the college where we went. And, um, you know, there was a lot of attractive women everywhere. The college that I went to, for every one guy, there was two girls. And so I'm surrounded by all these attractive women. But you know what? I wasn't interested in any of them. You know why? Because 29 years ago, when I told my wife that I loved her, I meant it. And for 29 years, she's been my girl. My one and only, period, period. And by God's grace, everybody heard the word grace, right? She's not perfect and I'm not perfect, but by God's grace, we have had an awesome marriage. And I can honestly say, I, 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 I hear this a lot, but I can honestly say before God and these gathered witnesses that I love my wife more today than I've ever loved her. And it's because of Jesus. He's the one that can do that work in all of our hearts. Now, after we got um, together and we started dating, the next year, uh, Christmas Eve, 1987, I told her a lie. I told her that I left my Bible in the church and we need to swing by on Christmas Eve and go pick up my Bible. Of course, I was lying to her because I was setting her up to pop the question. So the youth pastor gave me a key to the church, and after hours, we went into the church building, and you know she's looking all through the seats, looking for my Bible, and I said, hey, here it is, up here. You know, and she came up to the front altar, and then I knelt down before my wife, and I said, will you marry me? And she said, yes, and the rest is history. Now, after we got engaged, did we spend a lot of time preparing for our wedding day? Yes. But you know what? We spent more time preparing for our wedded life. After we got engaged, we went to pre-marriage counseling. Not because we had to, because we wanted to. And our church at that time had a great care pastor, and he had a heart for counseling and a heart for couples. And so we went through six or more sessions of pre-marriage counseling. After we got engaged, we read marriage books. We learn principles from God's word and just sound principles on how to have a great marriage. After we got engaged, we continue to grow in our relationship with the Lord. Please hear this. Maybe you've seen this illustration before, but it's the triangle illustration. You've got God at the top, you got the husband here, and you got the wife here. And as the husband is working on his personal relationship with Jesus Christ, and as the wife is working on her personal relationship with Jesus Christ, they're getting closer to God, but guess who else they're getting closer to? Each other. 
And it's so sad today because in a lot of marriages, you got God up here, and the wife's way up here, and she's growing. But for the husband, for whatever reason, he's stunted in his growth. And you wonder why there's so much tension in the home. Or maybe the, the husband's way up here, growing and gangbusters and loves the Lord and is following the Lord with everything he's got. But for whatever reason, the wife is lagging behind. And you've got to grow in your personal, this has got to be number one in your marriage. And if you're preparing for marriage, this has got to be number one, and that is your relationship with Jesus Christ. Before your relationship, guys, with her, and gals, before your relationship with him, it's got to be your personal relationship with Jesus Christ, hanging out with him, getting to know him, spending time in his word, spending time in prayer, growing, having Christ formed in you. Because when Christ is formed in you, he makes you into a better person, a more lovable person, and a more loving person. And so we did those things and when our wedding day finally came, we weren't just ready for a special day together, we were ready for a special life together. And so there's lots of marriage books. I'm just gonna recommend two for you today. Um, if you're single, Andy Stanley just last year came out with an awesome book called Love, Sex, and Dating. So that's for all you single people out there. I encourage you to go to amazon.com or CBD or whatever and grab that book. And then for you married couples, or those of you who are preparing for marriage, uh, Craig and his wife Amy Groeschel from Life Church, they wrote this book together, From This Day Forward, Five Commitments to Fail-Proof Your Marriage. They just wrote that, it came out last year. And I also wanna recommend that for all of our married couples. So Love, Sex, and Dating by Andy Stanley. It'll help you prepare for your wedded life. And then from this day forward, Craig Rochelle, it'll help you in your current marriage that you're in. Now the Apostle Paul understood the principle that preparing for your wedded life is more important than preparing for your wedding day. And so that's why in his letter to the Ephesians, he doesn't give any advice on how to plan a wedding. In his letter to the church at Ephesus, he doesn't give advice about flowers and dresses and wedding cakes, but he does give a lot of advice about love and respect and sacrifice. And Paul understood how important marriage is. Paul understood that outside of our relationship with Jesus Christ, listen, there is no other relationship on the planet that is so wonderful and so fulfilling and so awesome as the marriage relationship. It's God's idea. He created it to be that way. If you're here today and you're in a, a marriage where there's tension and there's anger and there's bitterness, that's not God's will. And if you will find out God's will for your marriage and begin to walk in that, the marriage the way he wants you to, what you will find is outside of your relationship with Christ, it's the best thing on the planet. It's an awesome thing. Does it take work? Yes. Does it come easy? No but it's an awesome, awesome institution that God created. So in his letter and in his other letters to other churches, the Apostle Paul shares some great truth, often some hard truth about how to have a great marriage. So we're gonna dig in today. Two weeks ago, we left off at Ephesians chapter five, verse 21. And so today, guess what verse we're starting in? Verse 22 to the glee of all the women in the church building. 
Verse 22. Is everybody there? All right. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church, and he is the savior, the provider, you know, the protector of the body, the the church body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their husbands in everything. And so verse 22, wives, submit to your own husbands. First of all, do you guys all see own husbands? Okay, and so the Apostle Paul is not saying to the wives, wives, you know, women in general, you need to submit to men in general. It's not what it says. We, Christianity is not a religion where men are up here and women are down here. Christianity is not a religion where men are superior and women are inferior. Christianity is a religion. I don't even like calling it a religion. It's a relationship, but you understand what I mean, where the husband is here and the wife is here and they are co-equal recipients of the grace of life. They have equal value in the sight of God. Different roles, yes, but equal value. And what's so sad is that verse 22 has often been taken out of context and used as a tool of manipulation instead of a word of encouragement. How many of you guys understand that every verse in the Bible has a context, right? Every verse in the Bible has verses that come before it and have verses that come after it. And the verses that come before it and the verses that come after it help us see the whole picture that God is trying to convey to us. And so what is the context of verse 22? All right, let's look back, starting at verse 18. Let's get the context. Ephesians 5, verse 18. And do not be drunk with wine. Okay, that's always a good place, um, to, always a good thing to remember. Do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation, but, here it is, be filled with the Spirit. We talked about this two weeks ago. Now what happens when someone is truly filled with the Spirit? When a husband is filled with the Spirit? When a wife is filled with the Spirit? Here's the evidences in verses 19, 20, and 21. Speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. What does that mean? The husband and the wife both have an attitude of worship. Christ is the center of their marriage. The Bible is the foundation of their marriage. And they worship Jesus Christ for who he is, the Son of God. The context says, when the husband is filled with the Spirit and the wife is filled with the Spirit, verse 20, they're both giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. They both have an attitude of not just worship, but an attitude of gratitude. They're thankful for the Lord. They're thankful for each other. They're thankful for life. They're thankful for all the blessings of life. They're not nitpicking at each other. They're not criticizing each other. They're not fault-finding against each other. Why? They're filled with the Spirit. Ladies and gentlemen, this is, as I said two weeks ago, the missing element for successful marriages right here. You've got to be filled with the Spirit in order to have a successful marriage. And if you're not, your your, your marriage is going to be down the toilet. Be filled with the Spirit. 
be under the control and the authority of the Holy Spirit. And when you do that, you'll have an attitude of worship. When you do that, you'll have an attitude of gratitude. And when you do that, you'll have an attitude of humility. Look at verse 21. Submitting to one another in the fear of God. That means, husbands, you're submitting to your wife sometimes. Wow, it's quiet right now. Did you know that verse 21 is linked to verse 22? In the marriage, absolutely. No, but we like to take uh, verses out of context and use them as tools of manipulation to manipulate our wives to try to get them to do what we want them to do. And it has nothing to do with what the Bible teaches. Verse 21 is linked to verse 22. In the marriage relationship. You say, how do you know that? Well, look at verse 21 submitting to one another in the fear of God. And in a lot of of the early Greek manuscripts, verse 22 says, wives to your own husbands as to the Lord. Did you know that? In a lot of the early Greek manuscripts, the word submit is not even there in verse 22. You know why? Because it's linked to verse 21, where the word submit is. So husbands and wives, verse 21, submitting to one another in the fear of God. And then verse 22, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Do you see the context that's going on here? And then, of course, verse 25, the verse that comes after, husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. More on that in a minute, but here's your first after principle if you're married. I love this principle because it gives the whole picture of what God is trying to say when a husband and a wife are filled with the Spirit and united in a marriage where there is mutual submission, the wife gladly submits to her husband who loves her as Christ loves the church. That's some good stuff right there. I'm so glad you guys are so excited about this. This is God's context. When a husband and wife are filled with the Spirit, verse 18, and united in a marriage where there's mutual submission, verse 21, the wife gladly submits to her husband, verse 22, who loves her as Christ loves the church, verse 25. There's your whole picture. There are verses that come before. Ladies and gentlemen, at the risk of saying it over and over again, listen, listen, listen. When you're filled with the Spirit, husband, when you're filled with the, with the Spirit, wife, you know what comes out of your life? The fruit of the Spirit. How many times have you heard me say this? Love, joy. Now think about the marriage here. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, meekness, self-control. When that's coming out of the husband, that's coming out of the wife, you have a picture of what God wants in a marriage. That's before verse 22. And then you have this mutual submission. The husband, as I said earlier, submitting to the wife sometimes, the wife submitting to the husband sometimes. And then you have the directive because someone's got to always have the last say, whether you're talking about you know, a classroom or a government or a corporation or the church. You know, someone's got to have the last say. Wives, submit to your husbands. And then you have the verses after verse 25. Okay, so let's all read verse 25 
together. It says now, husbands, love your wives as Christ loves the church and gave himself for her. And so the beautiful thing is that Christ is the example, husbands, of how we're to love our wives. Now, how did Christ love the church? He gave himself for us. How did Christ love the church? When he was sitting on a throne in perfect glory, angels singing his name and worshiping him, he decided to come in a form of a lowly man to a sin-sick world to clean up our mess. And he didn't have to do that. He chose, because of his love for us, to do that. He stepped out of eternity, and he became a man. He lived a perfect life. He went to a cross. He died for our sins. He rose again the third day. He ascended back to the right hand of the Father. And because of Jesus, we're loved this morning. We are loved. Everybody say, I am loved. Nobody has loved you like Jesus. Nobody has ever come close to loving you like Jesus. Because in your BC days, here's what he did. When you were going your own way and doing your own thing, not even thinking about God in the world, Jesus sent his spirit to woo you and call you and draw you into a relationship with him. And when you turn from your sins and you turn to Christ, here's what he did. He pulled you out of a pit of despair. I'm just wondering, how many of you guys in your BC days were in a pit and Jesus rescued you from your pit? Could I see your hands, please? Nobody has loved all these hands like Jesus has loved all these hands. He pulled you out of a pit. He cleansed you of all your sins, past, present, and future. He put your feet on a rock. He filled you with his Holy Spirit. He gave you a peace that surpasses all understanding, a joy unspeakable and full of glory, and he promised you a home in heaven forever. Nobody has loved you like Jesus loves you. Nobody even comes close. Husbands, love your wives that way. That's what it says in verse 25. Love your wives as Christ loved the church. In all my years of counseling, sitting in rooms where it's, the tension is so, so thick, you can cut it like a knife. In all my years of counseling couples in crisis, here's what I know. Never once have I ever met a woman who has got a problem with verse 22 who had a husband who loved her like Jesus loves the church. They don't exist, folks. Because when you have a husband who's filled with the Spirit, you got a husband who mutually submits, you got a husband who loves you like Christ loves the church, you'll gladly submit. You want someone to lead the family. You want someone to lead the marriage. Ladies, am I off base here? Is Can you respond with an amen, maybe? Right? We've messed it all up. God's word says, just follow this. You'll be okay. I don't feel like it. Well, that's the problem. The problem, listen to this, is when you have someone that you're married to who does not know the Savior, who's not filled with the Spirit, who's not willing to mutually submit, and who does not love you selflessly. 
And when that's the case, quite honestly, the word submission makes a woman's skin crawl. And I don't blame them. So what's the remedy? The remedy, if you're single, is don't get yourself in that predicament. The remedy, if you're single, is be very careful who you date, who you accept a ring from, and who you get married to. And that leads you to your next point. If you're taking notes, for all you singles out there, only date and marry a person who's actively following Jesus. So important. So important. This point right there. You know what? It makes some people mad. But listen, this point right here could save you years of heartache and tears. Years. If you're single and serious about your relationship with the Lord, only date and marry someone who's also serious about their relationship with the Lord. Well, Pastor Mike, he's serious. He said the sinner's prayer. Did their life change? I don't care if they've said the sinner's prayer a hundred times. The question is, did their life change? Right? Pastor Jacob mentioned this last week. 2 Corinthians 5.17. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And it's not like, bam, you meet Jesus and you're perfect forever. No, you know better than that. But here's what's happening. You're growing in a relationship with Christ. So your former life, where you're all narcissistic, and full of yourself is passing away and you're becoming more like Jesus. It's called spiritual formation. Christ is being formed in you. You're becoming more selfless, more giving of a person. I don't care how often someone says a sinner's prayer. The question is, did their life change? And so only date and marry a person who is actively following Jesus Christ. Why would you date somebody who doesn't have the same devotion and love for Jesus that you have? Because they look good? Hey, that'll last for about three months after the wedding ceremony. And then reality will set in. And when they're being rude to you, and they're self-centered and selfish, and their underwear is still over in the corner of the bedroom instead of in the hamper, and they don't give a flip about God, it doesn't matter how they look. Don't make this mistake. Don't wake up with regrets. Listen, I, I remember one ceremony I performed in another church years ago. Within two weeks, the woman calls me up. I'm divorcing him. There was red flags during the pre-marriage counseling sessions. I tried to warn them. They wouldn't listen to me. I probably should never have married him. I probably should have walked away and made him mad at me for life. But hey, please hear this. Singles, hear this. More important, hear the word of God. Look at 2 Corinthians 6.14. Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness, and what communion has light with darkness? Don't be unequally yoked, okay? Some of you guys are new to the Bible, and you, know, you don't understand biblical farming, and so let's look at the next picture. That's a yoke, okay? I'm not saying that's you up there at all. I'm just trying to illustrate the point. Don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers. The yoke is that wooden harness over the necks of the oxen. 
And of course, as a farmer, you would attach your plow behind the oxen, and you would hope that the oxen would be compatible, and that they would go forward in a straight line, so that you could, your plow could break up the fallow ground, so later on you could plant some seeds, so later on you can reap a great harvest. That's what happens when you have compatible oxen going in the same direction, same values, same philosophy, same love for the Lord. But when you have two incompatible oxen, they're going in different directions. And the rows are all crooked, right? And you, they're not really breaking up the fallow ground. You can't plant seed. You can't reap a harvest later on because they're incompatible. And so God's saying to all the singles out there, hey, don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Don't date them. Don't get engaged to them. And for God's sake, don't marry them. Because there's going to be problems in the marriage. Here's, here's why. Because if you're incompatible, right, you got one ox going, I'm going to go this way. No, I want to go this way, right? So the wife's like, I want Jesus to be the center of this home. And he's like, would you stop with all the religious talk all the time, right? I want to raise our kids in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Well, take them to church. Can we just watch a, a movie with maybe just a few words of profanity instead of over 100 F-bombs? No, this is my movie, it's what I wanna watch. And so you fill your home with F-bombs. Yeah, that's what every good Christian should do. I'm just wondering, for those of you who watch R-rated movies that are filled with F-bombs, is there anything in your heart that tells you this is wrong? Is there any twinge in your conscience that says stop filling your home with such C-R-A-P? I spelled it, I didn't say it. <laughs> Caught myself, bam, I got it. If there's nothing in your heart that's saying, stop this, this is not right, I question whether you even know the Lord. I question if the Holy Spirit lives inside of you. And no, I'm not being a legalist at all. What I'm telling you is that when the Holy Spirit, his name is Holy, by the way, lives inside of you, then you'll wanna live a holy life. But you're, if, you're, if you're yoked up, with an incompatible ox, then he or she is gonna do things that you don't wanna do. And fine, okay? That's fine. And I'm gonna talk about that subject here in just a moment and how you deal with that. But let me just warn you before we move on, if you date an unbeliever, AKA an incompatible ox, Okay. If you choose to go down that road, that ox may capture your heart. And that's a dangerous thing. You know why that's dangerous? Because you'll stop thinking objectively. And it doesn't matter what I say, it doesn't matter what your family says, it doesn't matter what Pastor Bob Cooper says, it doesn't matter what anybody says. You don't, oh, we'll be fine. Why? Because I'm in love, right? And later on in your unequally yoked marriage, you'll want to pray, but they won't. You'll want to read the word, they won't. You'll want to go to church, they won't. You'll get up on Sunday morning all excited to come in here and worship the Lord in spirit and truth. You look over and they're still snoring. And so please, I want to 
save you years of heartache and tears. Follow the word of God. And by the way, that principle, if we could just throw it one more time real quick, in 2 Corinthians, the 2 Corinthians verse, that principle can be applied to business owners. If you're a born-again Christian person, don't go into business with someone who's not. They have a completely different set of values and ethics and way to handle finances and the way to treat employees. And also it can be, can be applied to those who are your closest friends. I'm not saying not to have friends who are unbelievers. We should all have friends who are unbelievers. How else are we going to spread the gospel, right? What I'm saying is those who are your closest friends, don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Why? Because um, bad morals corrupt good behavior. Because blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and his law he meditates day and night. He's not listening to the bad advice from his closest friend who doesn't care about God. So business owners, close friends, and definitely those that you date and marry, don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers. All right, you might say, I'm already married to an unbeliever. What do I do? Here's your next point for all the after, uh, after principle for all the married people here. If you are married to an unbeliever and they are willing to stay with you do not divorce them. Now I'm going to define what willing means here in just a moment. I want to give you a chance to write this down. As you're finishing writing it, everybody at this time to please go to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. We're done in Ephesians 5 until next week. We'll keep working our way through that passage next week. But for now, let's go to another Pauline epistle his letter to the church at Corinth. I'm going way out on a limb here because this is controversial, but it's God's word, and so we're going to dig in verse by verse for the remainder of our time together. So 1 Corinthians chapter 7, starting in verse 10. It says, Now to the married I command, yet not I but the Lord. A wife is not to depart from her husband. Now, some people have said that means separation. I totally disagree, respectfully, but I believe he's definitely talking about divorce here in the context. So let's read it again. Now, to the married I command, yet not I but the Lord, a wife is not to divorce her husband. But even if she does depart, right, because not everybody listens to God's word here, but even if she does divorce her husband, let her remain unmarried, ouch, right? Or be reconciled to her husband. Now, and a husband is not to divorce his wife. Now, he got this from the teaching of Jesus in the gospel, specifically Matthew chapter 19. But it's so clear that the Lord, in his word, gives us two reasons for divorce. It's not even always his perfect will, but in Matthew 19, he says, pornea is a reason for divorce. Pornea in the Greek, um, from which we get our English two words, sexual immorality. That's what Jesus said. So if your partner commits sexual immorality, you have a window of opportunity 
to divorce your spouse. Now, I would encourage you to first pray and go to Hosea, read Hosea, and talk about how Hosea, even though Gomer, by the way, what mom names her daughter Gomer? Oh, I really hope there's no women called Gomer here today. We'll take that out of the tape. But anyway, Hosea, God told Hosea, keep going back to her, even though she's a whore. King James Version. Okay, so you got to pray through these things. But Jesus does give a window of opportunity there for adultery, a, a sexual immorality. But also now, we're going to see in a moment, for this case of the abandonment of an unbelieving spouse. So let's go back to what he says now in verse 12. He says, but to the rest, I, not the Lord, say. Now, some people look at that and they say, well, verse 12 is not inspired. That's not what he's saying at all. What he's saying is that verses 10 and 11, he's getting the teachings from Jesus and the gospel. But what he's saying in verse 12 and 13 is that Jesus did not teach this in the gospel, but I'm writing it. And how many of you guys understand when the Apostle Paul wrote, he was writing on behalf of God. Most of the New Testament are Pauline epistles. They're inspired by God. And so he's not saying this is not inspired. What he's saying is, you know, I didn't get this teaching from Jesus in the Gospels, but this is what I'm saying. This is, sometimes you could call this a new revelation. By the way, quick side note, if I ever stand before you as your pastor and say, I have a new revelation from God, please, 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 please go to another church the following Sunday. We have the revelation from God right here. But the Apostle Paul did give new revelation because he was an apostle. The apostles did that. We continue steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, which is the word of God. He says, verse 12, But to the rest I, not the Lord, say, If any brother has a wife who does not believe, and she is willing to live with him. Okay, everybody say word, the word willing, please. Okay, she's willing to live with him. Let him not divorce her. And a woman who has a husband who does not believe, if he is, what's the word? To live with her, let her not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but now they are holy. But if the unbeliever departs, let him depart. A brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? How do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? And so you might say, okay, how do I know if my unbelieving spouse is willing to stay with me? Again, everybody say the word willing here. Okay, and you guys stay with me here as I make this teaching. Hopefully, um, I rightly divide the word of truth here. It's all about willingness, okay? So let's say, wife, you have an unbelieving husband. And let's say your question now is, how do I know if he's willing to stay with me? You gotta know a little bit about the Greek. I don't know Greek, but I study people who do. Here's what the word willing means in the original language. It means they take pleasure in living with you. The word willing means they're pleased to live with you. The word willing is in the active voice and the present tense. What does that mean? Present tense means that they are continually pleased 
to live with you in marriage. That's the present tense. The active voice, that means that their willingness is displayed not so much by their talk, but their walk. It's in the active voice in the Greek. That means if your unbelieving husband really wants to, is really willing, takes pleasure in living with you, he will consistently show it by his actions. That means if your unbelieving wife, guys, is willing to take pleasure in continuing to live with you in marriage, they will show it, that wife will show it by her actions. It's in the active voice. So ladies, if your unbelieving husband says, I want to stay with you, baby, but he has an affair, or if your unbelieving husband says, I want to stay with you, baby, but he doesn't provide for you, or he says, I want to stay with you, baby, but he physically abuses you, he's proved by his actions that he's not willing. It doesn't matter what he says. And so look again at verse 13, and a woman who has a husband who does not believe. And by the way, when, when, when I read that, does not believe, they're an unbeliever, that means that their life is not submitted to the lordship of Jesus Christ. Because if any man's in Christ, he's a new creation. Old, is, old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. And so verse 13, if a woman who has a husband who does not believe, if he is willing to live with her, let her not divorce him. But what if he's not willing? Well, you read the rest of the verse. Now, here's my personal conviction. As a pastor, I have never, not once, ever, counseled anybody to have a divorce but here's what I do I take them to the scriptures I show them what the apostle Paul says under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and I tell them you go before the Lord and with an open Bible and the Holy Spirit hopefully moving in your heart you make your decision before God and husbands if your unbelieving wife says I want to stay with you but they refuse to talk to you for weeks if they say, I want to stay with you, but they refuse to be intimate with you, or they say, I want to stay with you, but they get involved with another man, she is proving by her actions that she's not willing. And look at verse 12. He says, if any brother has a wife who does not believe and she is willing to live, let him not divorce her, but what if she's not willing? I'll let you read the rest of the verse. And so God's word, I believe, is very clear. Now, what if you have an unbelieving spouse, they're not submitted to the lordship of Jesus Christ, they have no interest in God, and you know, they say, I am fed up with your Christianity, and they're threatening to leave. What should be your response be, believer? Bye. 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 You say, Pastor Mike, well, well, yeah, isn't that what he says in verse 15? If the unbeliever departs, let him depart. In the Greek, that's in the imperative tense. That's a command. So just like the command, repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. So he says to the believer, if you have an unbelieving spouse and they're not willing to live with you and they're, they want to leave, here's the command, let them go. A brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. 
But here's the good news. What if they're willing by their actions to stay in the marriage? What if the unbelieving spouse is willing? Then verse 16 says, how do you know, a wife, whether you will save your husband? How do you know, a husband, whether you will save your wife? So stay with them. I remember this one couple from a former church, and they were unequally yoked. She was a godly uh, 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 Christian, came to the church where I served at, and she was not just someone who sat in the pew twice a month. She connected, she served, she she grew, she gave. She was actively following Jesus Christ, but her husband wouldn't even go to church with her. But here's the point. He wasn't a jerk. And he loved her. He adored her. They disagreed about their faith. But he loved his wife. And you know what? Not for days and not for weeks and not for months, but for years, she didn't beat him with a stick, the Jesus stick or the Bible stick. She loved him. She lived the Christian life in front of him. She went to church. She honored God first in her life. Even though her husband stayed home, years passed. And you know what? One day, that man came in the back door of the church that I served, a Jewish man, and there wasn't many dry eyes in the place when at the end of the service, he stood up to receive Jesus Christ as his Messiah and Lord. And so, how do you know, a wife? How do you know, a husband? You might lead your husband or wife to Christ. Here's your last point as that comes out, and then we're going to wrap it up. I want to give you a great website to go to, and I want to refer an article to you that goes deeper than I just went in this whole thing about marriage, divorce, and remarriage, totally based on the Word of God. It's by a Calvary Chapel pastor named Steve Carr out in uh, California, but the website is sonomachristianhome.com, so you go to that website. And then in the search engine, because he wrote this article probably 12 years ago, but in the search engine, type in those words, understanding marriage, divorce, and remarriage. And now the article will come up, and it's in five parts, okay? So you got to read all five parts, and then you'll see on a deeper level what God is saying about this very important topic of divorce and remarriage. I'm going to leave that up there for just a second as you guys write that down. But I also want to encourage you about a great uh, idea that the teenage girls in our Elevation student ministry had. I didn't come up with this idea. They came up with this idea on their own. But they, they knew that I was going to go four weeks in a marriage series. And so they got together and they said, hey, wouldn't it be great if we provided free childcare so the married couples in our church could go out on a date? Isn't that great? What a great elevation ministry we have, right? And so, every Saturday night for the next four weeks, now space is limited, right? If, if all you guys do this, there won't be enough. And so, uh, once the sign-ups are at the place where Pastor Will says we can't take any more, that's it for this Saturday, but then there'll be sign-ups for the next Saturday. But if you go to the um, church website, you click on student ministry, that's where you can sign up. This Saturday night, 6 o'clock to 9 o'clock, we will have free child care by the teenage girls in Elevation and, and some adults there with them, obviously, um, to take care of your kids so that you can talk about the Craig Groeschel book 
You can talk about the Steve Carr article. You can talk about some of these points that I'm giving you in these, this four-part series. And here's what I want to encourage you to do, and that is don't let it get too heavy on date night. All right? If you sense that there's some tension, it's about to happen, there's going to be an argument, stop it right there. Don't go down that road. Keep it light. Make date night fun. Hey, date your wife, guys, every week. My wife and I, for years, every single Friday, whether it's lunch or dinner, we go out on a date. No kids, just her and I, eyeball to eyeball. We have fun, we go to concerts, we do different stuff like that. It's just a time for us to connect in our marriage. Here's why, because your relationship with your spouse is more important than your relationship with your kids. Your kids will leave when maybe they're 20 or maybe they're 30, I don't know about your house. Um, They're they're gonna leave eventually but she's with you forever, okay? Date your wife, take her out. Be the man, be the leader, and go out and have some fun. One of the greatest gifts God can give his children is the assurance of their salvation. If you're not sure where you stand with God, we want to help. Visit our website at www.calvarypsl.com and click on Knowing Christ.